0: Caleb and Ashley Bunch were married in this room on Saturday, October 10th, 2009. The reception was held in the church basement. It was decorated nicer than I have ever seen it. We did not go down into the basement through this door and then down the steps, but we went through that door out onto the back patio and used the outside steps to go down into the basement. John chapter 19, verse 17. And he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place... The place, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Our Father in heaven, we do want to thank you that we have a risen Savior. We want to thank you that Jesus does not continue to suffer. We want to thank you that Jesus died for our sins but did not stay in the grave. But tonight, as we contemplate the death of our Lord Jesus, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to concentrate, to learn, uh, Lord, with gravity to think about what it means that Jesus died for our sins. Lord, as I do my best to explain this, I am fully aware, Lord, that I cannot completely explain the horrors of Calvary. But Lord, perhaps we can learn something more of your love for us, which was exemplified on that Good Friday. And Lord, I wanna pray that that love would reach tonight the heart of someone who does not know you right now. I wanna ask, Lord, that even as you have in the past brought people to life on Good Friday, Lord, I would ask that you would do this in the next hour. Father, for those of us that know you, may we, after hearing the gospel again, love you more than we have ever loved you before. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. George eats old gray rats and paints houses yellow. That's how I learned how to spell the word geography. George eats old gray rats and paints houses yellow. Uh, I needed a lot of help with spelling. I was not good at spelling. In fact, I wasn't very good at geography. But I am fascinated with places. When I meet someone for the first time, I always try to learn where they are from. It's interesting to me. Um, And I don't think I'm alone on this. Lennon and McCartney said, There are places I remember. Many of our memories, both good and bad, are associated with places, whether it is a country or a city or a neighborhood or a building or a room. Many of us think of life in terms of location, location, location. Jesus, for example, was born in Bethlehem, and he died about five miles away, just outside of Jerusalem. During his three-plus decades on planet Earth, He traveled frequently uh, during his ministry. It's estimated that he walked about 3,000 miles in his three-plus years of ministry, but he didn't travel far from the place of his birth. Other than the brief stint that he spent as a toddler in Egypt, uh, Jesus, and along with most of the world's population at that time, remained uh, relatively close to home. In a, in a small geographical area. Well, when we consider the four Gospels, uh, the records of Christ's passion or, or suffering, there are a number of places that are mentioned in his final day. So this week, I read the four Gospel accounts of the death of Christ from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's what I came up with concerning the places that were mentioned in his final day. I probably missed some of them, but I came up with about 25 of them, give or take. Most of them are just descriptive or incidental or just there to explain the narrative. For example, seven of them are just names of geographical locations. There is the nation of Israel. There is the region of Galilee, which is to the north, which is where Jesus is from. There is Bethany, and Jerusalem, and Nazareth, and Cyrene, and Arimathea. Seven of the locations are in or around the city of Jerusalem itself. For example, a large upper room, the Brook Kidron, the Mount of Olives, the courtyard of the high priest, the temple, a garden, the tomb. Four of these places are Either the residence or the location of a leader. To Annas, to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod. A few of the places mentioned are more spiritual or figurative in nature. For example, the right hand of power or the mountains that are figuratively going to fall upon the people or the people wishing the mountains to fall upon them. There is the holy city, and then, of course, paradise. Uh, You get the idea. There are several places mentioned in conjunction with the death of Christ. And I have four of them, which I have not yet mentioned in the categories above. And so what I would like us to do tonight is to travel to each of these locations, and then briefly reflect upon what happened in each place and why it is significant. But before we take off on our journey to these four locations, I want to address two overarching thoughts about biblical geography or specific locations in the Bible. Uh, The first one is this the Bible is a book of historical fact, it is not a story of myth or legend. When I would put my kids to bed, I would always start off the story, uh, the bedtime story with, once upon a time in the land of nothing, there lived a woman by the name of Mrs. Scuttlebus. Well, that place doesn't exist and nor does she, but this is what my children were put to bed with every night. Even in something as magnificent as the Chronicles of Narnia, you can only try to envision Tashban or Arkenland. It's all left up to the imagination. But our redemption, on the other hand, was accomplished in history, in an actual location in time. I was surprised to learn this week that the Bible does not say that Jesus was crucified on a hill or a mountain. For 62 years, I thought that Jesus was crucified on a hill or a mountain, or at least I thought that's what the Bible said, or at least on some place of higher elevation. But, you know, that information or tradition wasn't introduced until the 6th century. Now, knowing what we know about the topography of Jerusalem, that's not a bad guess. But the Bible does not speak about Mount Calvary, nor does it speak about a hill far away. We're going to continue to sing about the hill far away. We're not going to change the lyrics, but the Bible says nothing about a hill or a mountain. But it does give us details concerning actual, historical, geographic locations. Our faith is a faith which is based upon fact and not a faith which is based upon fantasy. The second overarching observation is this, that it is, that is, it is very important to note that viewing locations as sacred is not a biblical practice. To view a location in the Bible as being sacred is not a biblical practice. In fact, I would go so far as to say that viewing those locations as the holy land could lend itself to superstition and idolatry. Once again... Pilgrimages to Jerusalem didn't begin until the 4th century, corresponding with the supposed conversion of Constantine, the Roman emperor. Uh, O come, all ye faithful. O come, ye. O come, ye to Bethlehem. You know what that is? That's a pilgrimage. It's saying we need to go to Bethlehem in order to get close to Jesus. But you don't see the 11 disciples Gathering up relics after the resurrection. Paul would frequently visit Jerusalem, but never once was it to visit the location of the crucifixion or to stand outside the empty tomb. Never once is a Christian in the New Testament commanded to visit these places or to hallow them or to revere them. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, a lot of people make a lot of money taking people on tours of where it all happened. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But when it is viewed as a way to get close to the Lord, that's when it becomes extra biblical or superstitious or even pagan. Listen to the words of Pope Benedict Sixteenth. He says, and I quote, to go on pilgrimage is not simply to visit a place to admire its treasures of nature, art, or history. And I would say, oh yes, that's exactly what it is. But the Pope goes on to say, to go on pilgrimage really means to step out of ourselves in order to encounter God where he has revealed himself and where his grace has shown with particular splendor and produced rich fruits of conversion and holiness among those who believe, end quote. And that's voodoo. God has revealed himself in his word through his son by his spirit. And the proclamation of the word of God is the revelation of God, not a bus tour to the Sea of Galilee. And you say, Pastor, we went on our Holy Land tour, and we had a wonderful time. I'm glad you did, and there was nothing wrong with you going. But please understand, going there and revering that place, or even, shall I say, worshiping the place, is a form of idolatry. God's revelation is through His Word, through His Son, through His Spirit, in the preaching of the Word. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn about the Bible through a visit to Jerusalem. You certainly can. And I'm thankful for those who do thorough research in history and geography and archaeology. But the land over there is no more holy than Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Belfast, Northern Ireland, or the front lawn of this church. Furthermore, in many cases the exact location of the place where we are going to stand in awe is not even verifiable. There are at least four legitimate claims for the exact location of the Garden of Gethsemane. Which one is right? It doesn't matter which one is right. Jesus knew where it was, that's important, and Judas knew exactly where it was. Does the exact location of it change the fact that he prayed not my will, but thine be done. No, it does not at all. Visiting the exact location does not mystically enhance your sanctification. And so, with those two overarching truths, that ours is an historical-based faith and that we are not to revere or to worship those locations as having some sort of a mystical, spiritual power, at this time, I would like to draw your attention to four locations recorded in the Passion narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we will take them in chronological order and simply answer what happened there in those locations 2,000 years ago. And our first visit is to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus finished celebrating the Passover with his 11 disciples and instituting the Lord's Supper, and then delivering what is commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and praying what we commonly call the High Priestly Prayer, he and his disciples sang a hymn, and they left the city of Jerusalem, and they crossed the Brook Kidron and walked up the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, The word means the olive press. Now, this would suggest that olive trees grew there and close by there was an oil press. What happened? Well, first of all, Jesus left eight of the disciples behind and he took his three closest friends with him, Peter, James, and John. He removed himself from them about a stone's throw away, and he, in deep distress, knowing that the cross was about nine hours away, prayed to his father. His disciples, Peter, James and John, could not stay awake. In his darkest hour, they slept. And it was in Gethsemane that after this prayer that Judas would identify him and betray him with a kiss. It was in Gethsemane that Jesus would knock over the soldiers simply by saying, I am he. It was in Gethsemane that Peter would chop off the right ear of Malchus. It was in Gethsemane that Jesus would heal and restore the right ear of Malchus. There was a lot of activity which took place in Gethsemane. But what I want us to concentrate on most is what happened in Gethsemane, within the heart of Jesus. Jesus was a man of deep emotions. We know that at the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11, he groaned, John 11, 33, or he was deeply moved, and then the shortest verse in the Bible, we know that Jesus wept. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, Luke 19:41. Jesus was moved with zeal and outrage at the money changers in the temple on two occasions. This was a man who had deep emotions and he expressed those emotions. But here in Gethsemane is where we get the deepest look into the heart of Christ. He says in Matthew 26, 38, my heart is very sorrowful, even unto death. He says this to Peter, James and John. In other words, I am so distraught that I could actually die at this minute. Mark puts it this way in Mark 14:33. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Distressed there can mean alarmed and troubled means to become very heavy in spirit. And he was so overwhelmed that God found it necessary to send an angel to minister to him, Luke chapter 22, verse 43. Luke describes the emotions of Jesus as being in agony, Luke twenty two forty four, And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Don't leave that phrase out, falling to the ground. You know when you are with someone and they are competing in an athletic competition, their sweat will go onto their clothing and then eventually it will hit the ground, but the clothing will absorb it at first. But when someone is really sweating, it will go directly from their body onto the ground. Not only does his sweat go from his body onto the ground, but it was, as it were, Great drops of blood. I've heard doctors try to explain this unusual distress, but I have never witnessed it, and I have certainly never experienced such agony, but Jesus did. As we visit the Garden of Gethsemane, we need to understand that Jesus did, all the while praying. Not silent, but praying. Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, thy will be done. And so as you travel to Gethsemane, not on a pilgrimage, but in your mind's eye through faith, remember the words of the hymn writer Charles Gabriel who wrote, For me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. What if, perchance, you just happened to be walking through the Mount of Olives that Thursday night? And what happens if something maybe caught your ear and you perhaps understood Aramaic? And you listen to a man off in the distance in agony. And he's not being silent. Because we're told in Hebrews 5, 7, it tells us of his emotion and of his volume. In the days of his flesh, it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I remember when my father died. We drove to my little town in Pennsylvania about 300 miles away. We slept that night with a family member and I could just remember in the middle of the night hearing them wailing and crying and sobbing when they had woken up in the middle of the night realizing what had happened. The deep Agony of someone crying and wailing. And let's say you were able to understand Aramaic and you're listening to Jesus pray and let's just say there's enough moonlight that you can see him. Perhaps if our mind's eye visited Gethsemane more frequently, we would not struggle to have cold hearts of love for Christ if you were able just to stand there, listen to him, watch him pray, I don't think you would struggle to have a cold heart toward Christ. I think it would warm your heart. I think it would make you passionate in your love for him. Perhaps if we walked past Gethsemane more often, we would not take sin so lightly. What? is it that we have done to this man that he would be in that agony? It was our sin that put him on his knees in Gethsemane. Perhaps if we attended the olive press regularly, our prayers would be more passionate and more selfless and more sincere. Go to Gethsemane and see your Savior as he agonizes such as no man ever agonized, and he did it for his enemies. Side note, even though he repeatedly asked Peter, James, and John to watch with him and to pray for one hour, and they failed, and they failed, he never threw it up in their face, nor did he ever even bring it up again, nor did he hold a grudge. You see, the hero of Gethsemane was praying for the disciples' prayerlessness. And he was praying for me and he was praying for you. So we need to take a trip to Gethsemane more frequently than we do, yes? As we travel on, let me take you to Akaldama, the field of blood. Early Friday morning, Judas realizes what a horrible thing he has done in betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver by betraying him and identifying him with a kiss. But he doesn't feel bad enough to repent. But he feels horrible. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He just feels bad. And so what he does is he takes the money, all 30 pieces of silver, and he goes to the temple and he tries to return the money. For now, to him, this money is filthy and it is disgusting and he no longer wants it. But the Sanhedrin, they don't want it either. In fact, they can't accept it. And the reason they can't accept it is because it is blood money. In other words, because the money which Judas earned was earned by betraying an innocent man. Therefore, the money is dirty, and it cannot be used in the temple for the service and for the glory of God. Never mind the fact that they, the Sanhedrin, were the ones that paid him the money. Now, all of a sudden, they have the morals and the the scruples and the standards not to accept the money. It's blood money, 30 pieces of silver, and so Judas throws the money at them and he walks away and he commits suicide by hanging himself on a tree at the potter's field. Now, how did he die? Well, Acts chapter 1 records it this way. Acts 1:16 to 20, this is Peter preaching about replacing Judas, and and he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness. Hang on to that. He acquired a field? It's pretty hard to buy a field when you're dead. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. How did Judas die? Well, he hung himself. Did he die by hanging himself? Absolutely. But as his body was hanging upon that tree on this high holy day, nobody in all likelihood wanted to come by and take the body off of the tree. When they finally did take him down, probably not with a lot of finesse or care, his body went headlong or faced forward and hit the ground. And since he had been dead for a while, his skin burst open and his bowels gushed out. Now, that doesn't happen to a person who's still alive. It doesn't happen to someone who just immediately died a few seconds before. He had been dead on that tree for a while, Technically, here's the technicality. Technically, Judas paid for that field. Because, technically, remember, they didn't accept his money. And since they didn't accept his money, well, then it wasn't their money, it was still his money. And they used that money in the name of Judas to buy the field where Judas was buried. You know, when he was alive, he was one of the twelve. He was the man that everyone trusted, so much so that he was their treasurer. But all along, he was stealing from them. And all along, Jesus knew that he would betray him. John 6, 70 and 71. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the 12 was going to betray him. Uh, we read that in John chapter six. Well, as you pass by the potter's field on this tour of ours, you see a man with a branch and a rope around his neck, and then he jumps from the branch. Uh, he wiggles for a moment, and then he is motionless. What have you witnessed? What you have witnessed is a man who had every privilege and every spiritual opportunity known to man. You witnessed a man who heard firsthand the Sermon on the Mount, a man who witnessed the miracles, a man who ate and distributed the loaves and the fish. He himself was strangely granted the ability to work miracles and most certainly You see a man who has preached the gospel to others, and others have been saved by hearing his gospel. And the reason we know that is Peter said he used to have a part in our ministry. This was a miracle working gospel preacher. And yet, even though he lived with Jesus for three years, he didn't know Jesus. He did not know him as Jesus, he didn't know him as Savior and Lord. Here's your application from the field of blood. Many of you look very good on the outside. Not only are you good looking, but spiritually it appears as though all is well. If we were to take a poll among the church members, most certainly, you would be counted among the saved and maybe among the most spiritual. Many of you could perhaps preach this sermon much better than I am preaching it right now. You know the Bible. You know the facts of the gospel. You can articulate them. You're good at apologetics. You can defend the faith. You have witnessed with your own eyes the undeniable power of Christ to save and deliver others. Perhaps you have even led others to Christ or preached the gospel, and others have been saved. You don't need any more information, you don't need any more proof or evidence. But the truth of the matter is, you don't love Christ. And you know you don't love Christ. You love this world. You love pleasure and ungodliness more than you love Jesus. And you betray him with a kiss Every time you leave others with the impression that you are a sincere follower of Jesus, how was it that Judas was able to get so close to Jesus so as to kiss him, to actually physically touch him and kiss him w- w- without being detected? Because nobody suspected it, nobody saw it. And you are betraying the Son of Man with a kiss every time. You come to church in your hypocrisy. Every time you sing and raise your hands but live a double life. Every time you talk a good talk and convince us, me, the elders, convince us that you are something spiritual, but in reality you know that there is another life going on where you do not know Christ and he is not your king or your lord. And tonight, perhaps you need to walk by the field of blood, Akaldama, and you need to see that man hanging by his neck. Or maybe you need to go stand over that man whose insides have burst out onto the ground and remember that God is not mocked and that the wages of sin is death. Perhaps you need to spend an afternoon in the field of blood and be reminded that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Judas did not repent. He felt bad, but he didn't repent. You have felt bad too, haven't you? You've felt bad a thousand times. There's a difference between feeling bad and turning from your sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This verse means that saved and unsaved people feel badly about what they do. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow, Judas, leads to death. Judas had worldly grief, He died physically, and he has gone to his place to die eternally. Spend some time in the potter's field and learn from the one who did not truly love Christ. Number three, let me take you to the praetorium. Now, there's a lot of debate as to the actual location. I can't get into it this evening, But once again, it really doesn't matter. What you do need to know, though, is that the praetorium was the residence or the headquarters of Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman prefect or the Roman governor. Rome ruled the world, and Tiberius Caesar was the big boss, and Tiberius Caesar's governor in Jerusalem was Pilate, and Pilate lived or worked out of the praetorium. Now, the confusion about the exact location of this place is compounded by the fact that Herod was also in town for Passover. And Herod had a residence in Jerusalem, and Herod had jurisdiction over the region to the north, Galilee, where Jesus was from. And this is why Pilate tries to pass Jesus, the prisoner, over to Herod, But Jesus remains silent in the presence of Herod, and so the ball is hit right back into Pilate's court. The question remains and, and is a mystery, and it probably always will remain a mystery. Where was this praetorium, and where was Herod? We don't know, and I don't think that we ever will know for sure. But here's what we do know for a fact. Jesus was tried in the middle of the night after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the Sanhedrin. He was taken to the home of Annas and then he was taken to the home of Caiaphas and then he was stood in front of the entire Jewish ruling council and they found him guilty of a crime and the crime was blasphemy because he claimed to be the son of God and it is blasphemous to claim to be the son of God unless of course you are the son of God And Jesus is the Son of God, but they didn't believe that. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he committed blasphemy, and that is a charge under Jewish law, which is worthy of death. They charged him with a capital crime. And they would have stoned him themselves, gladly, without a second thought. But they couldn't. First of all, they couldn't do it because the people would have revolted Because the people, some of them, a good number of them, perceived Jesus to be a prophet. Remember Palm Sunday. There were still people in Jerusalem that loved Jesus and who had shouted Hosanna a few days before. So the people would not have allowed that. But the main reason why they could not stone Jesus is that Rome would not have allowed that. Rome kept the Pax Romana, Rome kept the peace by making themselves the law. You just didn't go around stoning people. And so what the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, had to do is they had to get someone to do their dirty work for them. And so they take Jesus from their trial to the praetorium and magically on the way Abracadabra, the charge changes from blasphemy and now it is insurrection. Wake up, Pilate, wake up. We have a man here who is trying to overthrow the Roman government. He claims to be a king. Pilate says to him, well, are you a king? And Jesus says, absolutely, it is as you say. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, if it was of this world, my servants would be fighting, but yes, I am a king. You don't understand the nature of my kingdom, but yes, I am a king. Concerning the place, well, the ESV calls it the governor's headquarters in John eighteen twenty-eight, And apparently, right outside the governor's headquarters, Just outside the Praetorium, there was a place called the Judgment Seat. And the Judgment Seat, or the Bema Seat, sat on something called the Stone Pavement. And Pilate has has been going back and forth and in and out with the crowd and with Jesus and with the Sanhedrin, and he's trying to release Jesus because he sees absolutely no reason why Jesus should die. His conscience tells him to release Jesus. The evidence says release Jesus. His wife tells him to release Jesus. Jesus himself tells Pilate that his kingdom is not a kingdom which is violent or political or military. And so what he does is he tries this trick of of the old shell game to swap one for the other And he stands Barabbas, a notorious criminal in front of the people, and it was his custom to release one prisoner every year at Passover to appease the people, and this was a slam dunk. I mean, obviously the people are going to want Jesus released and not the notorious criminal, but the people said, release unto us Barabbas. So that didn't work. After that didn't work, Pilate tried something else. He had Jesus beaten He says, if I go halfway with this thing, and I really pulverize this guy, they're going to feel so sorry for him, they're just gonna let him go and we can all just have a nice day. And so he releases Jesus to a garrison of about 600 soldiers. And they flog him. And then they take a crown of thorns and put it on his skull and they take a mock scepter as a reed and they put it in his right hand and they sit him down and, and, and they, they have a purple robe on his back and they, and they bow before him and they mockingly say, hail king of the Jews. And then they, they, they come up and they spit on him and they take the reed out of his hand and they smash the crown of thorns into his skull. And, 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 and Isaiah says that his visage was so marred that he doesn't even look like a human being anymore. And Pilate thinks, okay, if I just bring him out in front of the people, behold the man, just look at him. Like, what more do you want? And when they saw the blood and the gore, they got even thirstier for the, for the, for the death of Jesus and cried out all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate has all this evidence to acquit Jesus, but he's trapped, and here's the trap. Here's what it comes down to. It comes down to kingship, because Jesus claims to be a king, and he will not back off of that. Well, Pilate, if you do not crucify him, then you are no friend of Tiberius Caesar. And he, fearing Caesar more than he feared God, Released Jesus to them to be crucified. Compounded by the fact that they added something in there that he was the Son of God, and when Pilate heard he was the Son of God, he was then horrified. He didn't know what to do. Here's how John records it in John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down. That is, Pilate himself sat down. Jesus is standing, but Pilate himself sits down on the judgment seat, on the Bema seat, at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha, hang on to that. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be Crucified. For our purposes tonight, I just want us to look at that word, Gabbatha. See, adjacent to the entrance to the praetorium was an elevated place with either ornate or a mosaic or tessellated stones. And so so what you had, uh, this is the pomp of the Romans, It, it was a very fancy floor. And on this fancy floor sat a seat, a judgment seat, where the governor would sit down and would render his verdict. Probably, this is where he sat earlier in the day when he condemned Barabbas and the other two thieves, the one that hung on either side of Jesus, but Barabbas gets off and he gets to go home, but both of them died, and Jesus died. So you understand, the trial for Jesus takes place inside. But the verdict is rendered from the Bema seat outside on top of these ornate stones in the open air. Gabbatha, the beautiful pattern of ornate stones upon which the judgment seat rested. Two observations before we leave the praetorium. One is hypocrisy, and the other one is delusionary pride. First of all, hypocrisy. Look back in John 1828. John Here is the hypocrisy. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves, the Sanhedrin, Jews, sons of Abraham, they did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You understand, if you go into the house of a Gentile, you are ceremonially defiled, you are ceremonially unclean. And so they dare not go into the home of Pontius Pilate, the Gentile. Can't take the blood money, right? Because it's blood money. Never mind the fact we're the ones that paid it. And now here they are a little later in the morning. It's okay to condemn an innocent man to death, but you do not want to be ceremonially defiled by entering the home of a Gentile. They're straining out a gnat, but they're swallowing a camel. Their religious idiosyncrasies took precedence over truth and love and justice. They were hypocrites. Let's take a walk past the house of Pilate, but we can't go in, lest we be defiled because he is a Gentile. Let's stand outside and wait for Pilate to finish questioning Jesus. Jesus. What do you see? You see the high priest with his ornate robe. You see the chief priest. You see the scribes. You see the elders. You see the Sanhedrin. You see our spiritual leaders setting an example. They will not mix with Gentile pigs because they are such holy men, but their hearts are filled with deceit and malice and murder. Can you smell the hypocrisy? Don't go anywhere, Pilate. Don't go anywhere. You stay inside and you try that man. Then you come out and you render your verdict. Next, as we visit this praetorium, I want you to notice the delusionary pride. Jesus and Pilate come walking out and they approach this beautiful pavement. Do you see the irony of this beautiful pavement. It's something to show off the pomp of the Roman Empire, to show the authority of of Pilate. Do you see the the incongruity of, of what's happening here? On the one hand, you have someone who has created the universe, spoke the universe into existence. All things were made by him. And he's beaten to a bloody pulp. But then you have this frightened, Frail, fickle, little man on his ornate tile sitting in his judgment seat as if he actually has authority. The Roman governor flaunting the the pomp of his gorgeous mosaic and he sits down and Jesus stands up. Pilate, has the gall to render a verdict. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. As we visit this place, we see a man standing in judgment of God. He was judging God. Such delusionary pride. But are we any different than Pilate when we rebel and disobey the law of God? No, when we disobey the Bible, do you know what we're doing? We are standing in judgment of Jesus Christ. Are we any different than Pilate when we reject Jesus as Savior and Lord? No, you're exactly like Pilate. You are the judge. You are the decider. You'll let Jesus know what you're going to do with him. His seat, his pavement. It's disgusting. It's, it's delusionary. It's, it's a facade. Dear friend, you do not sit in judgment of Jesus Christ. You don't decide what to do with him. You don't decide whether or not to obey him. You don't decide whether or not to worship him. And every time you do make that decision, you are acting in a delusionary manner. One day you will appear before the judgment bar of God. How dare you prepare for that day in the here and now by pretending that you are evaluating the merits of Jesus. While you still have breath, right now, get off your throne and fall before Jesus in faith and repentance and sincerely beg him to have mercy upon you. Seek his forgiveness that you have treated him like someone that you're going to decide what to do with. Seek his forgiveness that you dared to be aloof and disrespectful and disobedience and rule your own life. Perhaps a visit to the Praetorium will expose your putrefying hypocrisy and your delusionary pride. All right, one more stop on this Good Friday. We've been to Gethsemane, we've been to the Field of Blood, we've been to the Praetorium, and finally, lead me to Calvary. You know, the word Calvary doesn't appear in the ESV. Uh, it is the Latin word, uh, the, the, the Bible uh, depending on whether it is being translated from Greek or from Latin, it's going to depend on what you end up with. And and from Latin, when the King James Version was uh, translated, for some reason, Luke chapter 23, verse 33, calls the place Calvary. Latin calvarus, which is the Latin word for skull. The Aramaic word is Golgotha. So Golgotha and Calvary are the same place, and it means the place of a skull. Now, the meaning is disputed. Some say that it is the place of the skull because there was a skull-shaped hill. Uh, Some say it is the place of the skull because there were so many dead bodies that were executed there. One wacky, unfounded theory is that the skull of Adam was buried there. Uh, the, The theories are endless, The location also, by the way, is disputed. But just as the exact location of Gethsemane or the Field of Blood or the Praetorium is not known, still here, that's not the point. Because knowing exactly where it happened does not help our sanctification. Here's what we do know. We know that it was outside the walls of Jerusalem And we know that Jesus did not have the physical strength to carry his own cross. And we do know that he spoke on the way to a group of women and he told them to weep for themselves and for their children because of the impending judgment that was coming upon the city of Jerusalem because of their participation in this awful murder. And we do know that he was nailed to the cross and that that cross was lifted up. Uh, We do know that he spoke at least seven times from that cross. We do know that he was hung between two thieves on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. We do know that he was there for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. We do know that there were a variety of groups which were hurling an assortment of insults at him. We do know that darkness covered the land from noon to 3 p.m. We do know that there was a significant earthquake. We do know that the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. We do know that among the disciples, only John stayed to watch the others ran away. We do know that several women, including his mother, fearlessly stayed with him, loyal to the end, and most importantly, here we go. We do know that he died. We know that after he died, he was pierced in the side and out came blood and water. We do know that his body was removed and prepared for burial, and we do know that it was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Those are the historical facts which we do know. But here's the question. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So I say, Caleb, you may kiss your bride. They march down the center aisle, out that door. And we march out that door. And the reception begins out on the patio, and then it moves down the back stairs outside into the basement. And as I said, our church basement had never been decorated in such a lovely way before. It's beautiful. One of our members at the time, a man by the name of Tat Kim, looks around and he says, why doesn't the church ever use this room? So what are you talking about, Tack? He said, well, we're always going into that dingy basement of the church, and why don't we use this beautiful room? He didn't know where he was. He thought somehow we had two basements because we walked down the back steps. Because the decorations had masked the true optics of our basement. See, he didn't realize that he had been there before. He'd been there many times before. Hang on to that thought. A few years ago, Pastor Gary George from Massachusetts traveled to Israel to see the sights. It was his first visit. Nothing was familiar to him. Everything was new to him. It was beautiful. It was historical. It it, it was educational. And he was just doing the tourist thing. And then his tour guide took him and his group to the supposed location of the crucifixion. At first, he just looked around at the sites like millions of tourists had done before him. And he concluded, like Tak Kim, I've never been here before. But then, as he was meditating, he realized, wait a minute. 2,000 years ago, he had indeed visited this place not in a previous life and not in an out-of-body experience and not in a dream or in a vision, but in a deeper and in a much more real and profound sense. He had been to Mount Calvary before and he realized he had been to Mount Calvary before when he put it all together theologically and he realized that his sins had been to Mount Calvary Every last one of them had been to Mount Calvary. And there they were placed upon, they were nailed to that cross in the body of Jesus Christ. And Gary began to cry and praise the Lord with great joy and look around as if a man who had been there in a very real sense and said yes, I've been here before. This is where my sins were paid for. He'd been there before, not in a physical sense, but spiritually, he had been to Mount Calvary. What about you? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I'm not asking you to envision the gore, I'm not asking you to rewatch the passion of the Christ. I'm asking you, were you there when they crucified my Lord? In other words, do you know what happened? Not just the blood, not just the taunting, but the transfer. Do you know about the transfer, the substitution, that he bore in his body our sins upon the tree and that God made him to be sin? And that the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that Christ died for the ungodly. And that Jesus paid for your sins. Have you been there? Can you look there and say, behold, Paint the picture in your mind's eye. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not just the transfer, but the torment. Not the torment of the nails or the crown or the mocking or the torture or the thirst, but the torment of God's wrath, Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that is God the Father, to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Do you understand what this is saying? It's saying Jesus is there, okay? And you are there because you have been crucified with Christ. And your, your sins are not in part, but the whole, have been, have been nailed to Jesus Christ. And God the Father was there, and it was God the Father's will because he loved you so much to crush his son and for his son to pay for your sins. That happened in time and in space in a place called Golgotha, Mount Calvary. Were you there when they crucified my Lord at Calvary, Golgotha, the place of a skull? God the Father not only placed our sins on Jesus, but he punished Jesus, his son, with death. A death that we deserve, a death that we will never now have to die, because Jesus died it for us. That's poor grammar, but it's great truth. And in that death, he paid it all. The only payment that God requires for my sin was paid in full by Jesus on the cross at Golgotha 2,000 years ago. Yes, I was there when they crucified my Lord. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was there in that place. Were you there? In closing, I want to say that a visit by faith, not a pilgrimage, but a visit by faith to Golgotha is your only hope of salvation. To believe what God says about you. Do you want to know how bad you are? You are so bad that in order to forgive your sins, God had to kill his perfect son. That's how horrible you are. That's how horrible I am. That's how bad we are. To believe that Jesus took our sins, all of them. To believe that God killed Jesus in our place. To believe that in so doing, Jesus paid for all of our sins. To believe that he didn't stay in the tomb. To believe that he is alive today. To believe in him to save you and to cry out to Jesus to have mercy upon you. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there. Our Father in heaven, take us to Gethsemane where we can hear our Lord agonizing in prayer for us. Lord, take us to the field of blood and shock and frighten us to never be duplicitous, but to love you wholeheartedly and sincerely. Lord, take us to the praetorium. Teach us, Lord, never to be hypocrites or to be delusional in our pride. O oh, Lord, lead us to Calvary, where we can see our sins forgiven forever through the death of your son.